listening to a short cast from the London School of Economics and Political Science shaping the post-COVID World Series, a digested version of our live online public event series. This event was recorded on 4th November 2020. A full version is available to download via the LSE website or from your usual podcast provider. Hello everyone, welcome to the event today. Uh, the event is Behavioural Science in the Post-COVID World. I am Simon Hicks, I'm the Pro-Director for Research at the LSE. I'm also a political scientist, I'm not a behavioural scientist, so I'm here to, to learn as well as contribute. So let me first introduce our great panel we have today. Nick Chater, who is Professor of Behavioural Science at Warwick Business School. Paul Dolan, who's Professor of Behavioural Science at the LSE. We have Grace Lorden, who's an Associate Professor in Behavioural Science, also here at the LSE. Tali Sharat, who's Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience in the Department of Experimental Psychology at UCL. And we have Rory Sutherland, who's Vice Chair of Ogilvy, an international advertising agency and founder of their behavioural science practice. First question is to you, Grace. Which behavioural biases have made things easier for individuals during the pandemic and which have made things worse? For me, I think a lot of the time, the biases that make our lives easier for us are also the ones that have the potential to make it worse. And there are lots of different biases, so I'm just going to mention two today. So I'm going to start with optimism bias, which is the tendency to be over-optimistic, underestimating greatly the probability of undesirable outcomes and overestimating favourable and pleasing outcomes. And I think it's obvious that I suffer from optimism bias as the person who named this event. It's called Behavioural Science in a Post-COVID World, and I think we're quite far away from a post-COVID world. But I do think that optimism biases allows people to remain optimistic even during these kind of relatively dismal periods like we're going through now. And I think some of this optimism is down to people anticipating the end of the pandemic and what they might be doing. I was meant to go on holidays on Saturday. That's also cancelled. And when what we anticipate doesn't work out, most of us just experience a loss. And this is very painful for our well-being. And, you know, Paul is here today who knows about the determinants of well-being more than I do. And I think he might say that we do adapt. I think it's going to be really interesting to consider the speed of adaptation during this pandemic, because I can't think of a time when we've had data and also had so many people who've been going through so many negative shocks and disappointments. So I think optimism bias is kind of keeping us happy for some of the time during the pandemic, but equally it's causing us to be on what's becoming popularly known as the Corona coaster. The second I'd like to think, talk about is um, confirmation bias, which is the tendency to search for and interpret, focus on and remember information in a way that confirms to one's preconceptions. So I've always been quite envious about people who are very determined in their convictions. And as I've learned more about behavioral science um, through studying it, I've learned that perhaps these people actually suffer from confirmation bias, which is really easy in a world of information overload where it doesn't take me very long to find some information that actually agrees with opinions that I might, might have. I think us as people, we're more content living in a world of certainty. So confirmation bias is really, really helpful when we're going through times of uncertainty. And I think our ego also ensures that as humans, we, we like to be right. So if you've ever tried to change somebody's mind about something, you know, it's really, really difficult. And again, confirmation bias really kind of keeps us in this kind of happy area where we get to feel that we're right. We just look at information that supports our convictions. But I think at the same time, when assessing choices that have high levels of uncertainty, confirmation bias will allow people to have full certainty on the claims that they make. And this makes the polarizations of views much more likely. And this has obvious negative ramifications for a society, which we might get to talk more about later on. Thank you very much. Being married to an American liberal, I understand confirmation bias and optimism bias until today. Paul, 
More general question to you. What have been the dominant narratives during the COVID-19 response from a sort of behavioral science perspective? We want to make a complex world simpler. We want to resolve uncertainty in a way that makes it cohere. And stories provide us that coherence. We look for narratives. We tell stories. We like a good story. They're not only powerful in explaining the world for ourselves, they're also very good to enable us to prescribe how the world should be for others. And so in a pandemic or in any other time of our lives, we're looking for coherent social narratives, dominant and powerful stories that will make life easier for us and easier for the kinds of judgments that we might make about other people. And in Happy Ever After, which is actually really essentially a book around stories about how they affect us and uh, may lead us to sort of leading lives that don't make us as happy as we might otherwise. One of the chapters is, is about health. And it's about this narrative that we create and created that we should preserve lives, or that we should extend lives at all costs. And the preserve lives narratives is writ large in our response to COVID-19. You see it in every presentation of every piece of information. In fact, the only information that we've been given since March are the number of people dying from COVID-19, not placed in any context whatsoever. When the death rates started falling, transmission rates then became the salient number. And it's crowded out a conversation about all else that we might value. And when you have a conversation about that, you almost feel like you have to apologize for discussing something else that we might value. We know that we want to preserve lives. That's an important dominant narrative, but it's not the only thing that matters. I think that we've kind of suffered from a collective terror management theory kind of problem. You know, this idea that we, that we have this existential dread and we fear death and we act in ways to mitigate the impact that that has on our psychological well-being. And I think we have a collective sense of that, that we might have almost been at the point at which we thought that we could cheat death. I mean, we were not only at a point in, in our evolution where we were extending life expectancy beyond anything that our forefathers could possibly have dreamt of, but we were now engaging in activities that were going to prolong lives even further by, you know, the crazy Silicon Valley people having full body blood transfusions and whatever. You know, it's a kind of sense in which we could literally cheat death. And I think along has come this virus and it's reminded us of our mortality. And that's very uncomfortable. And so it's led us into decisions that when you account for social welfare properly measured, I would argue, may have led us to almost certainly have led us to doing things that will cause more harm than good. And Kahneman had a paper published with Jonathan Renshaw quite a while ago now. It didn't make it into thinking fast and slow, but it's a it's a piece that he wrote on politics, which is about why hawks win. And it's a piece about behavioral biases that lead you to be a hawk rather than a dove. And basically, they all kind of stack up in kind of leading you to be hawkish rather than dove-like. And I think that what we've seen in the response to the pandemic is a set of behavioral biases that compound the preserved lives narratives. Because it's a very strong narrative. It's like, what, what is the alternative? What, what, like, let people die? Or we should be making balanced trade-offs. It doesn't, it doesn't have the same resonance and power. It's a very strong moral position to take. It's very hard to argue against that in any powerful way. It's certainly compounded by the fact that Wuhan got the virus first and went first and acted in a particular way that set 
the scene and the tone for everything else that followed elsewhere. I've had a piece, you know, what might have happened if the virus had started in Sweden. Maybe we would have had a different you know, set of policy responses. It was fueled by fear. I mean, one of the things that clearly terror management has and narratives give us is a mitigation of fear and concerns. So preserve life is a good way of mitigating those fears. You know, it's a very powerful signal. I mean, who actually doesn't care about lives? So we could argue all day about what we ought to be doing, but we need to be placing whatever we do in a broader context that considers not just the preservation of life, but also the kind of lives that people lead. Thank you very much. Rory, my next question is to you. What do you think have been the biggest successes of behavioural scientists as a, as, as a profession in terms of impacting the policy debate during the COVID-19 response? Well, the biggest success for us looked at from a selfish angle is very simply that suddenly every question is a behavioural question. And that isn't just government, that's also business as well. In that if you look at how businesses and to some extent government forecast behaviour in the future, most of it is an extrapolation from past data. So you assume that traffic growth will continue. If you're an airline planning airline routes, you look at the routes which are growing, the routes that are shrinking, the routes that are highly profitable, and you extrapolate forwards. Okay, And then the other two sources of judgment tend to be one, boring mainstream economics, and two, market research, Okay, asking people. Now, under these circumstances, this really is decision-making under uncertainty because all three of those are unreliable. Gerd Gigerenza recently wrote a piece. Gerd said, it's a fatal mistake in a time of extreme change to optimise on the past. And so if you were the board of British Airways or indeed the government, two years ago, the main discussion would have been, OK, we're going to expand these routes, shrink these other routes. And by the way, how do we hedge fuel prices? And now the basic question is, how the hell do we get people back onto planes, if at all? It's been a huge kind of boost for behavioural economics. What was the advice they could give us at the beginning? Wash your hands, keep your distance. All behavioural. Secondly, by the way, I think experts in decision making un under uncertainty have a lot to tell the scientific establishment, where I think they're trying to effectively construct models of what's going on based on what they happen to know rather than what they need to know. And I'm still alarmed there haven't been any challenge trials that look at really, really important variables like the extent to which the initial dose might contribute to the severity of symptoms. We don't even know that variolation is impossible with this virus, by the way, because no one's tried. OK, so I think there is this fantastic question, which is that most business and government under normal circumstances operates under conditions of what I'd call fictive certainty. You just pretend that economics is true. You pretend that a past is a reliable guide to the future. And you pretend for purposes of maintaining your own sanity and, and essentially maintaining your own credibility that market research is a reliable guide to what people will do. And the fact that we've been presented with a case where all three of these are now, now seen to be highly unreliable. And we've also seen behaviours that we wouldn't have predicted We've also discovered completely new patterns of behaviour in terms of remote and flexible working, which I think will end up being a gift for the most part. But that's been an incredible, I think, elevation for the importance of understanding the deep, real why of human behaviour, the motivations and instincts that don't change, because those are the only bedrock on which you can build anything. And it reminds me, finally, of how tiny this community is. I mean, I kind of know all of you, right? 
Okay, if you look at a field like economics, which has absurd influence anyway, but you look at the number of practitioners and you suddenly compare, you know, the size of this field, which is genuinely tiny, that's alarming because if nothing else, I mean, you know, even if it causes a decline in quality, an increase in, in just in quantity of people who think behaviorally first is something that we really need going forward. That's great. So we need more, more behavioral scientists. We'd be able to fix the problem. So I think that's a great introduction to my next question, which is to Nick. What do you think have been the biggest failures of behavioral scientists as a profession in terms of impacting the policy debate during the COVID-19 response? I'm going to pick three things. I think the first one is a slightly marginal case, but it's one that got a lot of media attention, which is the, the notion of behavioral fatigue. And the reason I think this is a marginal case is that I don't think behavioral scientists really ever thought this, and I don't quite know where it came from, but it became labelled as something the behavioral science community had somehow planted in government's thinking. And I don't think that's correct. One reason that that was a dangerous idea, first it was used as a reason not to go into lockdown early, because people get jolly tired of it. Now, that obviously presupposes that if you go into lockdown early, you'll be in lockdown for longer, which itself is an interesting piece of logic, which doesn't necessarily stand up. But in any case, I think the concept of behavioural fatigue doesn't really have much of a basis. So Nigel Harvey at UCL has written a rather nice article on this recently, which I would recommend to people. But one very simple point is that if you're fatigued, by analogy with physical fatigue, then you'd imagine that if you had a rest, then you'd be absolutely ready to go again. But the idea that we could do another three-month lockdown, uh, if we had a bit of a rest, we could do another three-month lockdown, and we'd be absolutely fine, is nonsense. And the other point, of course, is that uh, actually people establish habits, uh, and those habits actually do become very entrenched. So you could say this toothbrushing, it's just going to cause tremendous behavioral fatigue. You'll never get people to do it for a whole lifetime. But amazingly, they do. In fact, we do all kinds of things over an entire lifetime. The other couple of things, which I think are quite deeply embedded in many behavioral scientists' minds, including mine, are connected to each other, both coming from the fact that when we think about uncertainty in behavioral science, we tend to take the economic model for good reasons, which is to say that we consider the range of possible outcomes, how probable each one is and what utility or cost benefit we'll get from it, and we average over them. And that's a very sensible thing to do from a normative point of view, but from a psychological point of view, it isn't very close to what we actually do. A really simple point is that this kind of cost-benefit analysis doesn't help us much when the world is very uncertain. So, for example, the rationale for locking down tends to be qualitative things like the health service will break. It doesn't tend to be a classic calculation of costs and benefits. Essentially, it's sort of constraints on the normal operation of the system. When they are violated, you just have to take evasive action. And it's not that the cost-benefit analysis is, is invalid. We just don't get to do that. It's too hard. And the social system just has to be stable. And that's just a different way of thinking, which I think politicians naturally think in. And I think every, in everyday life we do too. But it's really not really the, the, the stuff of behavioral economics because it's usually a, a modification of these classical economic theories. The other thing, which I think is something that is quite a big failure, certainly which I feel is applicable to plenty of my own work in the past, which relates to the same thing, is that in reality, and this also picks up on one of Claire's points earlier about confirmation bias, in reality, we often only consider the world for having one possible state. So while we sort of know it could be all sorts of different ways, in practice, we tend to think, what's going on with this pandemic, if we say a policymaker? Early on, we think, well, I, I think it's going to be a storm in a teacup. Won't really come to anything because that's happened before. In that case, don't bother with protective equipment and all that um, preparatory work because that'll just be wasted money. Now, 
a classic behavioral economics or indeed even more so a classical economic model would say, ah, but there is a small probability that it will, in fact, not be a storm in a teacup, it will be a total disaster, in which case you really, really ought to be spending some money because that will pay back many times because the disaster will be so big and taking precautions will be so important. But that's not our natural mode of thinking at all. I think our natural mode of thinking, and again, this will be true for policymakers and, and individuals, is to think, what's going to happen? Ah, it's going to be this, therefore I act as if that is true. I don't take account of other possibilities, um, except with great effort. Another example would be having a model in one's mind, which I think many people did in the scientific community at the beginning, this virus as something like a flu virus, or indeed uh, many viruses, which can't really be stopped. So if you start off thinking, well, viruses can't really be stopped, oh, this one will be of that type, then there's just no point locking down. And then we go into the kind of flattening the curve that everyone's going to get it eventually, herd immunity, hyper mentality. And I think, again, it's very important to uh, consider both that possibility that's the case or the possibility that, in fact, it can be stopped and it might be optimal. But not many people consider both. And that is really odd from a a, a sort of rational point of view, but that is the way our minds work. So when we're thinking about what policymakers and, and indeed individuals will do, I think we have to think about people being partly polarized by just having very fixed models of the world. So Phil Johnson Laird makes a point somewhere where he says that the fundamental human reasoning error is to think of only one model of reality and i think that's really been evident in this in this context and i think behavioral scientists kind of half know this but they forget it and certainly lots of the models i've built have totally failed to take account of that and are we trying to do better in future very prescient for me as a political scientist next up for tally um i think building exactly on what we've just heard from rory and nick there what lessons do you think behavioral science has given us that we should carry forward to future pandemics or crises i think i'm gonna touch upon two issues one is well-being uh, and mental health so what kind of factors are helping people at this time in terms of well-being and the second is behavioral compliance so in terms of uh, well-being and mental health, we did um, a large representative survey to try to see what factors are the most important in keeping people's well-being during the pandemic. And we found that the number one factor that was most important is having a sense of control. So people who had a sense of, of control and agency over their own lives, uh, they did uh, relatively well control has very much been affected by the pandemic because people really have much less control than they did before. You can't decide if, you know, when are you going to leave your house? Where are you going to travel? When are you going to see your family? Agency has been restricted and that has a very negative effect on people's well-being. And the data shows that clearly that that is really, really important. And so in trying to think how we could use that information um, going towards perhaps this pandemic and, and other pandemics, is how do we maintain people's sense of control and agency? Can we give people choices in the current situation? And so that's something that needs uh, people need to think about. For example, in some schools in many countries, uh, parents are, are given a choice whether they want to have their kids go in person or go online. That's just one example. But it's something that we need to try to maintain as much as we can, given the situation. The number two factor that was most important for people's well-being was income. But it had half the effect of control, which I found surprising when they compete for variants. Age was important with actually older individuals doing better than young adults and middle-aged individuals. So despite the older individuals being at risk, it is the younger adults in their 20s and 30s who suffered the most because their daily life has been most affected. 
and people who felt that they were at less at risk also did better. But I think what what this means is that we really need to think not only at the population level what we can do, but look at subpopulations and specifically at the vulnerable populations, because what we see, and this actually touches on what、uh, Grace was saying. Is we do see adaptation. So the data, not only ours, there's great data from Fancourt and Steptoe at UCL. They surveyed seventy thousand individuals in the UK every week since the first pandemic. And we, I don't have the data for the last、um, couple of weeks, so I don't know how this has been affected by the second、uh, lockdown that's coming in. But it's clear adaptation. So happiness has suffered at the beginning, significant decline, but has been going up very steadily, as well as life satisfaction going up, depression and anxiety symptoms going way down since the first lockdown, and stress also has been going down. But when you look at that, it's a bird's eye view, right? So it is on the population level, people are adapting,、um, as you'd expect from the human species, right? We're extremely good at adapting to new environments, new circumstances, extreme adversity. There's so much research on this, but when you then look at the subpopulations, that's when you see people who live alone, people who already have mental health pre-existing problems, and so I think most of the attention has to be focused on those populations going forward. And in terms of behavioral compliance, what we have seen in our data, and, and I'm sure this is other people have seen it as well, is that people's perception of the danger of the pandemic has been. Going down. That is, people perceive the virus as less dangerous than they did in the beginning. Again, this is obvious introduction to psychology type of thing because if a stimuli is not actually affecting you personally, you get used to it and then you underestimate the risk even more than you did before. The reason this is especially important is because, and this is, I guess, a bit of, of good news for human nature. We have seen that the number one predictor for behavioral compliance is helping other people. So it is the risk that you think the virus has for the population at large and for others, not for yourself. So when you have these two things compete, you're asking why are people complying? Are they complying because they think they're at risk? Are they complying because they think other people are at risk? And it is the other people at risk that is driving behavioral compliance the most. To me, that's good news about human nature. Somewhat surprising, I have to say, but it means that we're trying to to act in order to protect others. And and someone had a great comment here. Someone named Alison Frost, and she said that the message in the UK was save the NHS, and that had a great effect on people's behavior. And I think that is a great example of our data. I think that suggests that the message, as some of it has been in the UK, is about complying to save others. Thank you all very much. Well, so as an outsider coming to this, I feel very privileged to be part of this conversation. This is part of a, a series we have, a series of public events and, and other type of events we're organising at LSE called "Shaping the Post-COVID World."、Um, it le- remains for me then to say thank you to the speakers and thank you very much to all the participants and、uh, on the call and for your excellent questions.